0: Hey friends, Ashton Gustafson here and welcome back to another episode of Good, True and Beautiful. I am so excited today to have this new guest come join us and be a voice at the table. I have recently discovered her work hard for me to believe I'm just now finding out about this incredible insight, information, and wisdom that she has put in the world. She's the founder and director of the Spirituality Mind Body Institute, which is at Columbia University in New York. Her book, The Awakened Brain, has just come out. I have devoured it, and I have absolutely loved um, just the rigor and the data and all of the insight she's brought into navigating our spiritual lives both for ourselves for the people that we've been entrusted our children and so forth and so with that being said super grateful today to introduce you guys to dr lisa miller lisa welcome to the podcast
1: i'm so delighted to be joining you ashton thank you for engaging with the awakened brain thank you for joining in this exploration of the science i i'm thrilled to be here together
0: Absolutely. Well, um, you know, I always kind of stumble through a bio for someone as I introduce them and they come on uh, to our uh, podcast here. But when you introduce yourself and your work in the world, where do you begin?
1: I say that I am a scientist, a clinical scientist, who looks at the impact of spirituality in our lives. And then I really can't resist saying a few more things, which is, and when we do... Strengthen our inner spiritual core, our lives unfold in an entirely different way. That is scientific fact. Yeah,
0: yeah. I so love it. Is <laughs> well, I, um, <laughs> this, this book, so The Awakened Brain, um, The New Science of Spirituality and Our Quest for an Inspired Life, um, I don't get over into the scientific weeds that often. I stay, I, I tend to find myself over. Uh, in in a little bit more of the world of mystery and with the mystics and things like that. But your hardcore facts and data that really just back up some incredible things, um, it's just amazing. And you've been, I guess, studying now uh, this work for 20, 30 years, right? I think it goes back to the early 90s when you started your work.
1: It does. It does. And when I first started out in 96, 97, I gave grand rounds at Columbia Medical School where I was a postdoc. And it was as if, you know, I had spoken in another language, the looks of what what is she talking about? And some folks even got up and left saying, oh, well, this isn't mental health. This study of spirituality and mental health, that's not really mental health. Um, so it was really um, because I knew very deep in my heart that this was real. And I had known in my own spiritual path. There's nothing perhaps more real, more bedrock than our connection to spirit, who I call God. Um, There's really nothing as uh, the proof's in the pudding, right? So when I held the mirror of science up to the impact of spirituality in our lives, the results were really jaw-dropping. And in that sense, I've come to see science as a form of witness, really life-changing impact in our lives, our health, our wellness, our ability to connect and love everything gets so much better when we have a strong spiritual core.
0: Yeah, no, no doubt. And you know, so much of the book is your experience with your colleagues consistently pushing back against you wanting to bring this spiritual conversation uh, into the room with helping patients heal. Like time and time again, you you talk about in the book that your your colleagues, the people that you were trying to study with, the people that you were trying to help bring healing and wholeness and integration into people's lives, they consistently kept pushing back and saying, we don't have room. We don't have space. The realm of spirituality doesn't have a place in what we are doing here. What was that experience like for you to just have that consistent pushback from your closest confidants in the people you were working with
1: yeah I, that's exactly right so it was so unfamiliar to mental health providers to clinical scientists in the late 90s early 2000s to bring spirituality our deep connection to God our higher power the presence of that relationship in our love for one another relational spirituality was absolutely absent mental health treatment. recovery so can you imagine uh the deliberate omission of relational spirituality from a healing process Mm -hmm. you know in the hospital if you go in with a stubbed toe and you leave with tb you've gotten worse it's called iatrogenic harm and that is what i thought we were doing you know good people bright people unwittingly by disintegrating the spiritual core from the whole person by silencing I dig into relational spirituality. That in our pain we might hand it over to a loving, guiding, what you might say, higher power—God, Jesus, Hashem, Allah. Your word is your word. But we are built to do this, and it was absolutely silenced in psychotherapy. And so, I, you know, I—I I didn't mind really. In fact, I saw the sort of disgruntledness and the lack of familiarity by some of my colleagues as really the sure sign that this work needed to be done because I saw in the patients a hunger that was so great. I mean, the patients, you know, I'm telling you, Ash, they would literally pull me over as a young psychologist and want to talk about their spiritual experiences, even if I wasn't their treating therapist because they knew I was interested. Mm. Yeah. I was.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was your ear. It was your interest in them. It was you seeing them as human. Um and I think over and over and again, please forgive my lack of uh, uh clinical uh vocabulary. I'm 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 just picking it up as I as I read your work. But over and over, it was the model was like, "Hey, let's just get to the childhood wound. This person has some type of mental suffering. Let's just make them relive the wound over and over and over. And if they if they can just get that and figure that out, then maybe they will be healed." And you really entered the mix, you know, and said, uh, "Tell me more. Tell me how you're feeling. Tell me." If, you 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 became an ear. You had this human exchange, and from that a spiritual awakening occurred, and then healing started to happen.
1: Yes, exactly. Precisely so. It really was the vogue at the time, those goggles that psychotherapists wore, was that somehow we would be set free from our pain if we revisit and revisit and revisit again the childhood misfortune, the wounds, as you call them. And what I saw, I share in the book a story of Mr. Danner, The first time I sat down with Mr. Danner on the inpatient unit, he was a fellow who had a very hard life. Um, He'd also done some harmful things to other people. But Mr. Danner, we sat down for our first session and he told me this very cold, chilly story of being four years old and looking in at his mother's coffin. Um, And that that was a very, very painful time for him. And then you know, would sort of stay in that moment. And I thought, wow, you know, I'm glad we got to that that spot. The next week, Mr. Danner came back and he started the session the same way. And after about four or five sessions, I realized that Mr. Danner had been socialized by a string of therapists in this urban hospital mm-hmm. to come in, sit down, go back to when he was four and repeat the story. And in that sense, the story had become really a very limiting Box in which his entire life was being squeezed. This, you know, this real sense of determinism that what happened way back then is really going to confine who you are and really going to be the method through which we work. And he, he was in his at least therapy behavior, he was very trapped in a four, you know, story that had taken place over 60 years ago. So it dawned on me that I was going to just get present with Mr. Danner. And get to know him and be in the here and now. And I was a very new therapist. So I didn't really have a word for what we were doing or a theory for what we were doing, but I followed him. And I felt in my heart, the movement of his spirit. Mm -hmm. And what I saw was a man who was struggling to be seen, to be loved, to be known. He was struggling to exist As someone with dignity and presence right now today in our society, he was homeless. He was in a SRO, sort of like a flop house for a person without a home. And he felt very low about who he was right now. And what actually transpired in our time together was that I saw an awakening of his spirit. I saw someone who felt in a very total appropriate you know, way within the boundaries of treatment, who felt loved and who knew he was seen. And I noticed that when we just open up our heart, our spirit to God's presence, to the force of life to come in us and through us, that actually it was God who was doing the healing. It was the spirit that was doing the healing. And what we weren't doing was locking him up in what someone else had done to him or what he had lost long ago. We were opening the window and letting in life.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were almost in a way, uh, uh, allowing him to step outside of the identity that one, you know, doctor after another, maybe made just, you keep reliving again. I'm going to go back to that childhood wound, like just that being the identity, but your sheer presence questions. I think the phrase you used in the book was you, you simply just held him in love that, that simple, generous, kind quiet act was something that began to awaken the awareness within him and you said you started to see like interesting change come forth and fruit come from that interaction
1: it was the presence exactly as you say of love and i'll share with you a story on that very same inpatient unit exactly how you put it ashton where someone was imprisoned so relentlessly in their childhood story, that it was of ultimate consequence. There was a woman on the unit at that same time who had been a hidden child during the Holocaust, a Jewish woman who had been sent to England so that she might live during the Holocaust. And there, unfortunately, in her specific case, She had landed in a family that was very abusive. And I know most of the families were really heroes and embracing of the hidden children. But in this case, she was mistreated. She was abused and she would tell the story, her story equivalent to the four-year-old looking in the coffin was vomiting at five and being forced to lick it up off the floor. And that story she told to her therapist over and over. And this was a woman who had seen such trauma that she didn't even speak. I mean, She'd been in and out of the unit at least 15 times. Her body language was like a wall. Her face looked as if it was absolutely locked down. You know, the gate is closed. The arms are crossed. Don't talk to me. And yet the treatment at the time pushed her and pushed her. And again, I don't want to implicate her specific treating therapist because it was the method of the time, but it was so wrong for her, pushed her and pushed her to relive licking the vomit off the floor? How did she feel at five? What was it like to be torn from your parents? You know, The worst possible experiences of her life were defining who she was in now her elder years. And as the Jewish high holidays rolled around, which you know are a time of forgiveness and repentance and renewal, in the high holidays, she took her life. She committed suicide on the inpatient unit and I, in my heart, felt then, and I still feel that had she instead been looked at with love as a soul on earth, had the window been open in the relationship between her and a the therapist to let the healing love of God, who I, who I call God's spirit, into that relationship that would have touched a part of herself, reignited her deep spiritual heart, and she would have not been imprisoned by those stories. And I feel in my heart, she would not have taken her life. So that is the dire consequence of not letting each other live, knowing each other, whether it's as therapists or as friends and community or as colleagues, as old stories, as little lock boxes that limit our infinity. And the infinity, of course, is God wakening us up. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So I, and, and I don't want to jump to the end here at, at, at a conclusion already right out of the gate, but like, what is the great invitation for us who we're not on unit six, floor six at at, at a hospital in New York, but we're entrusted children to raise, uh, employees to work with, friendships that we've been entrusted and given what is the great invitation for us just in the everyday mundane as we hold space for people like I, that that's the great aha that i have here is like what a beautiful opportunity we have just as humans as we interact with people that are experiencing all sorts of suffering mental suffering emotional suffering and so forth what what would you say is our great invitation and maybe let's start with I know you write a lot about, um, you know, spirituality to, for for children, but like as parents, like how do mm-hmm. we how do we hold that space tenderly so that mm-hmm. so that that security and safety can can be there and the awakening can start to bloom.
1: Yes. Well, first of all, I think we might even start with a statement of the problem, which is forty years ago in the United States it became really a sweeping movement to throw all religion out of the public square. And it was done for probably a good intention to be inclusive, but it was not. It was actually radically exclusive of all religious and spiritual life in the public square, in the center of how we come together, who we are as fellow citizens. And with that went the spiritual baby with the bathwater support understanding that just as you know we have two eyes, two ears and a nose, we're physical, cognitive, emotional beings, we are spiritual beings. That was assumed. That was in the air and water of our country 40 years ago. The other thing we lost was pluralism, where you tell me about how beautiful Christmas was, and I tell you about the third night of Hanukkah, and someone else tells us about Diwali, and we speak of the crossing of our ancestors in a deeply sacred way. You know, each person authorized in their own voice, their own tradition to use their words, their language, their voice. Well, pluralism is completely absent. Spiritual and religious pluralism is almost never discussed in the public square, in the classroom, in a boardroom. We've come a distance on other forms of inclusivity, which is great around race, gender, and orientation. But spiritual inclusivity, I want to know you, Ashton. I want to hear your journey. I want to know you in the deepest way, which is at the level of the spiritual heart. So what this means, a public square silent on the spiritual core where just as I am in relationship to God, I feel God's presence in relationship to you, Ashton, a relational. Okay, you take that out of the public square. And what we have left is hardcore transactional relationships day in and day out what can you do for me now how is our relationship going to advance you and advance me everything is a is a deal Mm -hmm. and i can feel this i mean i I sit down at a dinner party or a luncheon and i I hear the little ticking ticking you know where where do you live and you know how long have you lived there and uh, what does your husband do and what do you do it's it's like we're being treated like commodities but a spiritual view says you know i don't care if you're on the front Page of the paper because your dad just went to jail, or because your dad just made $10 million because you are here as a soul on earth. And I want to know you, my sister. So it's a whole different view of knowing and loving each other without getting into and perhaps knowing full well, irrespective of what we've done or not done, what we have or don't have. It's our true higher self that we bring into a public square that has a spiritual core. Oh, yeah. That is totally different. That's I vow. That's transformational relationships. That's commitment. That's another way of living. So when we look at the culture to dominate you know, youth culture on the telephone, right there, online Instagram and all the things that are, it, you know, I don't locate it in the manufacturers of the phone. I locate it in the horrific decision to push spiritual and religious life out of the public square because what's left is nothing but transactional personas you this is me and my friends having the best time sorry you weren't invited at the nicest place with the best clothes and we look a certain way and you know that's a very transactional sense of who we are and it's very far from what could be on the very same phone if we held at our heart a deeper understanding of each other by having spiritual life in our public square.
0: Well said. Um, yeah. We've, we've traded transformative relationship for transactional. We are yes. now more concerned with being correct than being connected. I think that's huge. Mm. Um, mm. You know, my way is this way, right? Rather than allowing, uh, you know, if it's true, it's true everywhere. Allowing uh, a sense of beauty between us and and knowing that it is in our differences that we can find some unity.
1: Um, Instead of calling each other out, call right. each other in, call each other in. So, you know, let's go on an adventure. Let's. I want to get to know you. I want to see you know, what your life's like. I mean, I think you're completely right that, you know, we have in this radical materialist society, which I don't just mean materialistic. I mean, the go-to default is that it's real if you can touch it. So, you know, the go-to default is that uh, if you can prove it in a mechanistic way, if you can touch it and see it and physically know it, it's more real. Somehow it's more proven. It's, It's really a lopsided embrace of radical materialism or empiricism. And okay, so Let's use that lens, we'll say, fine, we'll go with empiricism, let's take the empirical lens and let's point it at what your brain looks like when you live a spiritual life. And we did that, we published it in JAMA Psychiatry and what we found was that when we live a spiritual life, like a muscle, the spiritual core gets strong Well, in the brain, the cortex processing power is strong. And where is it strong? Where do we have greater power in our brain? Well, when we sustain a spiritual life, our brain is more powerful in regions of perception, reflection, and orientation, which means we live in the same house with the same family on the same block, but we look through our brain in a sense, and the world is brighter. It is bigger. It is more loving. It is guiding. We're able to see that, you know, what we don't even see to help people sometimes bottom out in AA, which is we are in relationship to a higher power. We don't need to hand it over you know, in a moment of despair alone, we are daily in a relationship with a higher power. That's how we're built. And the brain looks different when we live out that capacity of perception. So spirituality is not a belief. It is an inborn capacity to perceive into the deeper nature of life.
0: Yes. Yeah. The capacity. And you opened the book summer of 2012, 2012, you're like, we've run all these tests, we wonder what's going to happen, and friend of yours is like, hey, the results are in. You guys sit down, and literally there on the paper, you're like, oh, my goodness. We asked these questions about spirit, devotion to spirituality, and literally the physical aspects of the brain uh, are healthier, more robust. It's like the muscle has been flexed. And I, I underlined probably 10 times in, in this book where you were like, it literally helps you see more. It literally helps you see with, with freer, fresher, more beautiful eyes. Like we don't understand just how massive the ramifications are of devotion to one's spiritual life. Not only does it physically make your brain healthier, but it actually increases your capacity for pluralism, for love, for unity, for connection, like you've just been talking about.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and what I love most of all is that every single one of us is given this birthright. So it's not just, you know, the most pious or the, it's most not reserved for the elect. Yes, yeah. we are all spiritual beings. And even if we feel completely despairing and completely cut off and have not had much help in developing our spiritual heart, it is still there. And no matter what anyone of any faith tradition has said or not said to us, it is still there. We are all spiritual beings. We are built to have our own relationship with who I call God, spirit, the higher power. It's in us and we can chart it in the brain as I've just shared. We can also chart it through uh, genotyping, through looking at our genes. We can look at our lives, how our lives unfold. And it's just, no matter what lens of science we use, what method, MRI studies, genotyping studies, epidemiological studies, it is absolutely the case that we are naturally spiritual beings. And natural spirituality, if strengthened, makes us so much healthier, so much more whole. And you know, it's not surprising to a person of faith, but to show this to the medical community, you know, for instance, I'll give you an example. A teenager going through the window of risk for addiction. There's no time in our lives where we're as likely to slip into addiction as in our teenage years. It's really the trailhead of our life, of our adult life, and how are we going to walk it? Well, a teenager, a 19-year-old who says, I turn to God for guidance in times of difficulty, he or she knows that they are loved, they are held, and they are guided. When I have a tough decision to make, I ask, what really does God want me to do? Nature is a sacred home to me. My family is a spiritual place. Daily spiritual awareness. Well, that team is at 80% decreased risk of addiction to drugs and alcohol going through the lifelong window of risk using very, very precise DSM diagnoses, which means Okay, put it this way. If you told me there were a little pill, this little green pill, and I can give this little green pill to my teenage son, and he's at 80% decreased risk for addiction, I think, you know, me and every other parent in the United States would be standing outside the Walgreens for opening time. Like, Santa. this is just this. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Exactly. And yet, this is our birthright. This is who we are. And so, when you see something as profoundly protective, as personal spiritual life. You know, it could be that someone is Christian, new, Jewish, Muslim, spiritual, but not religious, whatever their tradition may be. Or if they're outside of a tradition, when there's a strong spiritual life, and in particular, a relationship to God and the ability to feel God's presence and our love for one another, when that's there, 80% less addicted, 60% less likely to have major depression. less likely to take our lives. And that goes up to 82% when spiritual life is shared, like Ashton, you and I are doing right now, connecting in the reality of the presence of spirit in and through our lives. So there is nothing that is that protective. I mean, usually scientific articles are published because something is 10 or 20% protective. But if you're saying 80% protective against the epidemic Mm -hmm. sweeping the U.S. right now, the epidemic. Of the diseases of despair, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy said the greatest challenge in his advisory of this administration to our entire country is the poor mental health of young adults. This is the antidote. It is right here. And why are they sick? And why are they struggling? Our young sisters and brothers, teenagers, emerging adults, 15 to 26, why is that? Because we took the spiritual core out of their world. And now they're paying the price.
0: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the stats are crazy, an 80% reduction. Um, And and this is like over, this isn't just in their teen years, right, that you're talking about the data, like this is over a lifetime, that a devotion to spirituality um, uh, is, is going to help them navigate, which suffering comes for all of us, right? It's just how are you going to navigate it when it comes your way?
1: Well, and suffering is the perfect time to deepen yeah. our spiritual awareness. Yeah. It looks like we are even built that through moments of despair or struggle, that despair can actually be sort of the knock at the door.
0: Yes. yes. In
1: depression to to an awakening, an awakening of spirit. And it, it could be through a loss or a life event, but it could also spontaneously hit us at, at adolescence, at midlife, where our soul is deepening. And we chart this in science by a. Increase in the heritable, meaning the inborn surge, the biological clock at these windows, adolescence, emerging adulthood, where the hunger of the heart for love and transcendence and the nagging of what is my ultimate purpose? Like not if I'm a you know doctor, lawyer, banker. I mean my ultimate purpose, those questions and those yearnings of the heart boot up. It hurts, it's sort of an existential pang. And that means, you know, Vroom. It's like the ignition. You're on an escalation of your spiritual journey to inherit the next station of your life.
0: No doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, yes. That it's the pattern of order, disorder, reorder. Father Richard Rohr. Uh, you know, he teaches. Beautiful. He just he teaches with our pain, we will either transmit it or we will be transformed by it. Same with our suffering, right? We either transmit it or we will be transformed by it.
1: Yes, and and it's true. And we can show you what you just said in that beautiful, powerful voice of lived wisdom or theology is mirrored in empiricism by the fact that if we look at people who have a profound spiritual life, they're two and a half times more likely to have suffered greatly in the past 10 years. And yet once they build a strong spiritual connection to God and seen life in this very illuminated way they are protected going forward against a recurrence over the next 10 years by 75%, which means that it, depression stewards spiritual emergence some of the time. Not always, it can be through awe or the birth of a child, but often just despair can be the opening of, of, of deepening spiritual awareness. So science mirrors that, and we can even show where in the brain, you know, the, the muscle gets thick, the cortex is thickened, and people to recover from depression through an awakening of spiritual life, what I call awakened awareness. They've awakened their natural spirituality, their awakened brain. And what we see in these people is that they have more thickness, they're even more spiritually attuned at the level of the neurophysiology for having gotten there through the struggle of depression. That's pretty amazing. And. They give off, when you put a little EEG cap on their head and you look at what comes off their brain, showing how they're using their brain, they give off a wavelength. Folks to move through struggle and pain to an awakening of spiritual life, give off high amplitude alpha. High amplitude alpha is the very same wavelength you pick off the back of someone in a deep state of prayer or meditation. And these folks are just coming in to rest. They've found a new resting point in their inner life. And that very same wavelength, high amplitude alpha, goes by another name, which is Schumann's resonance. It is the wavelength of creation. The earth's crust up one mile all the way around the earth, a very thin layer, one mile all the way around the earth vibrates at the same wavelength as the spiritually engaged brain, which means that our felt sense of oneness and awe and sacred connection with all life is mirrored in the sameness of the wavelength as if it's one consciousness field. We've entered into one kingdom. It's quite beautiful. Wow. have oh returned. My gosh. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I could do yeah. this all day. Um, I mean, there's lit- there is literally a new hum that we give off. A wavelength. That, that's my redneck way of saying wavelength. There is a new... That's a, beautiful. Th- there is a new radiance. Uh, there is a new hum. There is this uh, there is this flow out from us that physically it can be picked up at the scientific level after we've gone through a burial, resurrection, a death, an order, disorder, reorder. You come out on the other side, you show the wound and you say shalom. You can spot these people from a mile away, by the way. Like, you know, when you've come in the presence of someone that's made it through, they, they've, they've gone through the hero's journey. And it's not that they have a boasting, look at what I did, look at what I know. It's actually a very peaceful, quiet, an okayness with how things are. And, and I'm going to even say now, this, this alpha wavelength is is humming from them, uh, and you can even find it on a scan. Mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing.
1: And my, their eyes are bright yeah, and yeah, sparkling. Yeah. yes. Yes. Right. I mean, in fact, if I might, if you, if we think about the people we've met in our lives, I mean, like you said, you can see them coming a mile away, bright, sparkly eyes, yeah. um, so kind, the people who see us the way we'd want to be seen, who assume, hey, you're going to assume I'm good. You're going to assume I'm loving. You're going to assume I'm worthy. That felt sense of being beheld with unconditional love, the sparkly eyes you know i wouldn't say nine times out of ten i'd say 99 times out of 100 yeah. then they go on to if you sit down tell you about the type of trials and challenges and trauma and occlusions in their life that are just you know make me quiver and and yet they've moved through that valley and have found this love that is so deep and they're going to give it to you because you just walked in their path mm. i mean. Yeah. The walking spiritual, I mean, they're spiritual here teachers without ever grabbing the mantle. That's they right. walk the walk. That's you right.
0: Know? That's right. Yes. Oh my goodness. So back to the conversation about children and teens and spiritual devotion, oh, yes. literally being this the yeah. the 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 thing, the silver bullet, quote unquote, if you will. It isn't that you had them in choir. It isn't that they took the pre-college courses. It isn't that they're on the starting five of the basketball team. Literally, the the conversation is, are you exposing them? Are you are you giving them that space for the spiritual t- capacity to develop?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And in particular, you know, we know this as parents and as grandparents. Grandparents are just as important as parents. That you know, the little people, our young children, and the teenagers as they get older, they are riveted by us. Now they might not admit it as they become teenagers. I raised three, but I will tell you that you know how we walk is observed at every moment, and when we act act out of our own spiritual values, our children see that, and that is half the story. But the other half is that we open. Up our heart and open up our use our voice to be transparent about what it is spiritually we are experiencing, what we are doing. Pray out loud, meditate out loud. I'm so grateful to see you as you pick up your child. You are the greatest blessing in my life. Narrate what you understand to be true in your own heart spiritually. So your child can hear it, because all day long, right? I mean, parents who hasn't spent, you know, I don't know, how many thousands of words saying "tow truck," you know, "big apple," you know, <laughs> <laughs> but but to narrate the spiritual reality mm-hmm. alongside, mm-hmm. right? And when we do, it locks in. The child knows it's there. That that sense that they naturally had, you know, the naturally spiritual child will perceive God and feel love and have spiritual experiences, but we've got to give it a name so that the child can lock it in, know that that's real and access that as they get older. So the two pieces of spiritual parenting that I find time and time again through the lens of science is that as parents, we walk the walk and equally talk the walk or transparent and generous and open-handed about our own spiritual journey. As our kids move from childhood to adolescent years, that includes how we've developed a spiritual response to pain, how it is we've turned to God in times of great struggle. You open up, you know, when I was 19, and I share this in, in the awakened Brain, I had grown up feeling the warmth and the love of God in our home, and I felt it in my mother, who was a very both spiritual and religious woman, and I went off to college, and I couldn't wait to think about these ultimate questions. And I couldn't find a single class in which we actually talked about the power and presence of God. There was, you know, a very a world religions class which had the intimacy of looking out an airplane window at thirty thousand feet. You know, it, it was there was no felt sense of these traditions. Um, so in college, I started getting very, very depressed because I couldn't find anyone to talk about spirituality. And even worse, I was getting the vibe from not just classmates, but pedagogically from classroom discourse. There was the assumption that God wasn't real. And that shook me horribly because I'd always felt God's presence. And the teachers I admired were telling me God wasn't real, some directly, some obliquely. And if I really took that note seriously, it was a very cold world, right? And I remember going down that slide, 19 years old, wondering, you know, wait, everything you ever told me, mom, dad, you know, pastor, priest, and rabbi, whatever one's tradition may be, is it real? Is it true? It's now I realize the work of spiritual coming of age. It's spiritual individuation. It's hardwired. We can see this through the lens of longitudinal studies. There's a biological clock we can chart it in longitudinal twin studies well i didn't know that no one had ever mentioned that and i was just afraid that the universe had no meaning Mm -hmm. and i got so depressed i mean i i looked horrible i you know couldn't believe how horrible it felt like what if the universe has no meaning and it wasn't until that summer where you know i went home and i'm standing on the beach and looking out over the ocean and i see light on the water and I realized, of course, God exists. I knew it in my deepest inner wisdom, my spiritual heart, my intuition. It was a mystical moment. And I realized then that, you know, yeah, okay, Yale is a good school, but you know what? I only got half an education because I only learned about empiricism and logic. And I was actually miseducated to disavow intuition and mystical awareness. Mm-hmm. And I then spent the next 30 years, trying to help universities and schools embrace who we really are in a deeper way, which is we are every one of us endowed inside our being with a mystic and intuitive a logician and an empiricist we know in many forms. And that's the way if we look in the MRI, that's the way that the brain actually functions most optimally is when we can ask a question of our head, you know, what's the purpose here? Why am I here? Where do I go? And then get the answer from an intuitive hit or a loving, deep felt sense of God's presence, an intuitive, mystical moment, or vice versa, have a awakening experience and then discern and untangle its meaning, you know, head and heart together. That's an education. And that's what we now try to do um, at the Spirituality Mind Body Institute at Columbia Teachers College. But we built this program because we couldn't find it. I wanted to go to this program and I couldn't find it. You know, it's, and I think academia is now faced this tragedy where the number one killer of young adults is suicide. You know, it used to be auto accidents, but it's not auto accidents and it's not cancer and it's not COVID it's suicide. And things are so bad that effectively society is bottoming out for lack of spiritual awareness. And now that society is bottoming out, it, Finally, there's hunger to hand it over and there's hope that maybe we can hand it over to not just something bigger than ourselves, hand it over to God, loving, holding, and guiding. You know, bigger than ourselves isn't good enough. Bigger than ourselves could be the state, and I don't care which state. Bigger than ourselves could be an unsavory or even a dangerous organization, a cult or an extremist or some form of terrorism, but handing it over to a loving, guiding creator we are loved held and never alone handing it over to god i think as a society we are ready for because no one else no one knows where else to turn yeah
0: yeah yeah and we have to get comfortable with mystery we have to get uncomfortable with a little uncertainty right just because you can't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist um you know, I think, especially in your world, you say it was all about the head, but at some point you knew it also had to be about the heart. This is this great both and, this yin and yang that we all have to navigate.
1: It is a both and. In the awakened brain, I talk about achieving awareness, which is tactics and strategy. Yep. And yep. we need that, sure. Planning, A plus B plus C. But, you know, complete control, command control over life, I don't know, certainly less than a quarter of the time, I'd put it around 15, maybe 10%. Life has a spirit, a will of its own. Life is dynamic. And I think we were just hit over the head in the pandemic and then the mental health sequelae after the pandemic to realize that we actually don't radically control our lives. We do not wholly control our lives, that we're actually in a dialogue with life. And we need to shift the conversation with life as a society from being, you know, what do I want and how am I going to get it? and How are you going to give it to me, life? We need to shift the conversation around, what are you going to give me life? What do I want? And are you delivering? To a deeper conversation with what is life showing me now? It's a dialogue. I would say, what God are you showing me now? And that's a life of discovery, not of mastery. Mm-hmm. It's an adventure.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Life of discovery, not mastery. The ego loves to achieve. Um, but what you really want at night is to awaken, you know, the the little voice, when you lay down, you lay your head on the pillow at night. If you're, if you're not careful, you're going to have the narrative of achieving, achieving, achieving. But, but what you're bringing into the realm is this, this dialogue, this conversation with the universe, the one song, right? That's at play the holistic unified world that we're a
1: part of. And well, and sometimes when we really don't get what we want, you know, in door number one, achieving awareness, why didn't I get it? What did I do wrong? How could it be? I did a and I did B and I did C and I still didn't get it. If we can shift and have the other conversation with life, what God are you showing me now? What God is in store for me now? Who am I to become in this next leg of my path? That conversation doesn't give us what we want. It gives us something far greater, often better than what we wanted.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, can I read page 120 out of the book or, or a little paragraph that I loved? I think, I think sure. it goes right for this. And you said, I'd experienced a personal relationship with a surprising transcendent presence. And I'd shifted away from the mentality of trying to fix the world to fit my preference and desire and into a mental framework through which the world appeared loving and guiding. Most important, I sensed that I was in dialogue with that loving, guiding universe. That we were in an ongoing conversation. It wasn't a transactional relationship. I say what I want and I get it. It was a collaborative relationship an integration of inner and outer life, a way of tuning into, receiving, and emanating consciousness, I'd awakened to being in relationship with life. Is that what we're talking about when we talk about spirituality, being in relationship with life?
1: That is exactly what every single one of us is capable of having, a deep relationship yeah.
0: with life yeah. life is happening for us it's not happening to us i think that is a great i'm just Beautiful. and again I'm, I'm always i've got these two little girls i'm raising right and i'm crazy curious as to here they are with this capacity the size of the universe to be in relationship with life itself um and what a tender incredible place to be and it's like how do we how do we just help keep the water warm, right? For, <laughs> for them to navigate, to be in that dialogue, that back and forth. And maybe, maybe it's just a little bit lighter and brighter. Maybe it's not as uh, cut and dry as we've made things in life. Maybe we could just bring them into that conversation and say, well, what do you think life is saying here? What do you think love's up to in your life?
1: Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. And be very forthcoming, when we ourselves are sort of figuring out the moment you know how remarkable that you know mommy came three times to the same house to pick this up and no one's here but here on the fourth time you were with me and you got to meet mommy's colleague's daughter right Mm -hmm. just point out how life gives us gifts that are so much bigger more loving more exciting more surprising and and just frankly better than anything that you know back using yesterday's information I'd cooked up in my head. You know, what I want is based on every moment in my life until now. But what spirit brings, what our awakened awareness discovers, is something beyond what I've ever imagined. It's someone who I love so much I didn't know I could feel that way and I didn't know they existed. It's a line of work that means so much I'm willing to get up at 4 a.m and do it's a different the gifts that we perceive through our awakened awareness, the gifts of God, of the universe, are beyond all the information I've ever had until this point. And so I may not even know what they are as they land before me. But if I can feel in my heart, wow, you know, this, is, this feels resonant. This feels like a gift from God. This feels um, not what I wanted. It's better than what I wanted. Why, as you say, Ashton, is this happening for me? over time whether it's one week or a year or 10 years that meaning is revealed it's a high pixel you know it's a high pixel hit wow and then over time you know just how important that unlikely hairpin turn in the road was well we see in time how it brought the most important things in our life mm. and i share in the awakened brain about finding these hairpin turns in our lives because many of us have already been in deep dialogue with life yeah. but perhaps have had you know yet to take in the moment to to chart this in our awareness yeah yeah
0: and i would say there's the invitation like if 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 our listeners are here going okay this this awakened brain dr miller she's at Columbia, she's, she's done all this, but what's the great invitation? I would say life can be lighter. Life can be brighter. There can be more surprise. There can be more delight. Um, you enter the flow, right? there's way more flow. If you feel like you're forcing life, right? And there comes that achiever again. If you feel like you're forcing things, if you want to enter the flow, that's always been there and it's always been available I think this Awaken Brain book would be a beautiful doorway for maybe some of our listeners that are at that place.
1: Well, Ashton, I can say that you know, having grown up in a world full of love, but with a lot of talk about achieving awareness, when I found in the miracle of who God brought as children into our lives, and I share this in the book, that all of the planning and achieving in the world couldn't have made the family I love, I became... Devoted to trying to understand each day, not just through achieving awareness, but through awakened awareness and draw them into tandem. And I will say that the big gifts and the moments where I became more loving, less egotistical, um, didn't get what I want, got something better than what I wanted, those moments of growth and love and connection were through what we all have awakened awareness.
0: Wow. And it's all here. you've you know there's a lot about the your journey and your story of your family uh, in the book. Um, again, I just can't say enough good things about it, and so grateful for you and your work and your energy in the world. I definitely think it's make it's gonna make my life lighter and brighter. I'm gonna pass it on to my kids, and hopefully the folks that join us here at Good True and Beautiful, they will take this wisdom uh, into their places of work, their families, their relationships. And interesting things can happen so um sure do appreciate it and super grateful for your work and for coming on
1: it is a joy to be with you and ashton you are good true and beautiful it is a joy to connect
0: (laughs) well thank you so much uh well i hope we can have you on again sometime
1: i look forward to that